0: turn their retirement goals into reality, and improve their lives. And now, here's your host, Ross Brannan.
1: Hi there. Are you a high-income earner? Do you feel like you're paying more than your fair share? Do you feel like the tax man is taking too big a bite out of your check, out of your finances? Well, I'm here to help. I help high-income people legally reduce their taxes, and I can help you. So if you feel like you're paying too much in taxes and you're a high-income individual, schedule an introductory conversation with me and let's see what maybe we can do to help. Also, if you've had a large capital gain event, maybe it's a business, maybe it's a piece of real estate, maybe it's stocks or bonds, investments, we can help there too. So reach out, schedule a discovery call, and let's see if we can solve your problem. Welcome to the show. My guest today is Perrin Desport. Perrin is the co founder of Polaris Healthcare Partners. Polaris Health Co Partners helps dental entrepreneurs build and exit successful group practices. Their expert consulting team will guide you through the full business growth cycle by helping you hone your vision, develop and execute your growth strategy, centralizing services, helping you bring in new associate equity partners, obtaining the appropriate growth capital and exiting the business you've built, partnerships, and exit strategies. Perrin, welcome to the show.
2: Great to be with you, Ross. I really look forward to this. Thanks for having me on the show. Ross, Floss, you know, we're off and running, right, man? Exactly, exactly. So
1: that was a little bit of a mouthful in the intro right there. Tell us what Polaris does.
2: So Polaris is a consulting and M&A advisory firm that focuses exclusively with group dental practices. And we help entrepreneurs who happen to be dentists build and ultimately exit successful group practices. So as you well know, half of the industry is solo dentist in a solo location, which that's the way the industry has been uh, structured for all of time, it seems. We really don't work with solo practices and we don't work with private equity backed enterprise level groups. We only work with entrepreneurs who are looking to build a group and potentially exit that group.
1: And by group, we mean more than one location, correct?
2: Yeah, that's right. It's, you know, maybe they have one location, but their desire is to add a location every year for the next three or four years. So how do they do that? We, we coach them through that process. We consult with them through that process and they could end up bringing minority partners into the fold through either buy-in or earn-in equity structures. So it might start out as one owner in one location, but it could end up being multiple locations with a lot of minority partners along the way.
1: And it could be just two partners 50-50 who want to create their own little mini DSO,
2: correct? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Okay. So what do you see kind of going on in the market right now? Obviously, DSOs are kind of everywhere, but I've started seeing more people say, I don't want to sell to a DSO. I want to copy them. What are you saying?
2: Yeah. So, you know, I mentioned that we help entrepreneurs build and exit successful group practices. And exit does mean sell. That being said, the vast majority of our consulting clients do not want to exit. They want to build and operate. They want to build a business that is um, not dependent, upon their clinical skill set for their own income. So you can call it passive income if you want. You can call it some level of income derived through the work of associates. And I think, you know, just because DSOs are the the rage, if you will, doesn't mean that it's right for everybody. We are, in dentistry at least, we are in a, in a period of consolidation, I would say, and it it has been going on for well over a decade. You can look at other healthcare verticals to kind of see how this thing ends up. My wife's an ophthalmologist. My brother-in-law is a heart surgeon. There are very few independent surgeons of any sort these days. They're all part of hospital networks and private equity-backed groups and everything like that. Ophthalmology, optometry is no different. Dentistry will end up being no different. That being said, there are a lot of entrepreneurs um, who are dentists that are thinking about building a group and they moving into building a group because they had a friend that did it. And just because somebody else is doing it doesn't mean that you should do it too. So I think it's fraught with danger if you don't have eyes wide open, if you don't understand how to go through that growth journey yourself.
1: Now, that makes a lot of sense. Let's step back and talk about just the medical healthcare world, because you are right. Optometry, ophthalmology is definitely going to eat up bright private equity. Dermatology is getting eaten up by private equity. You typically don't find, you know, I'm in Florida. In Florida, you typically don't find a physician who is not part of a hospital anymore. Hospitals have been buying groups up. The only ones that they haven't bought up has been in my, what I've seen is urology, dermatology, and orthopedics. Everything else has been bought up. And I'm sure it's only a matter of time before those get bought up.
2: Cosmetic surgery would be another one, yeah. Yeah,
1: Yeah, because that's typically cash, not insurance. (laughs) Veterinary
2: Um, would be one because it's cash for the same reason, but yeah.
1: Yeah. So what do you see? Because I've talked to different people. Some people think that the mom and pop dental office will be extinct within five years. No. I've also heard people say that DSOs only control 20% of the market, and at most they'll get to 50%. What are you seeing? What's the truth?
2: Well, truth is, you know, <laughs> that's crystal ball stuff. And I mean, I'll just answer it this way: first and foremost, you're right. Other healthcare verticals have a, a higher level of consolidation than we see in dentistry and in some of those other verticals that we just mentioned. And and one of the primary drivers of that is uh, government payer and the um, uh, reimbursement rates of that and the complexities involved with it that really are not uh, as... prevalent in dentistry as they are in other areas of medicine. In dentistry, less than 10% of the revenues of the industry are, are government payer. And that's not the case in those others. So the complexity that involved the the manpower needs, the speed to cash, all that other kind of stuff is a significantly different animal in, in dentistry. And um I think if memory serves me correct, uh about forty percent of overall reimbursement in in dentistry is still uh, out of pocket. So there's a tremendous amount of cash payer. That's one of the reasons that dental practices in and of themselves are such profitable endeavors to, to own and operate from a PL and l standpoint, fixed costs and variable costs. Uh, and it's one of the reasons that the industry is so attractive to private equity. And it's also a reason that so many uh, dentists are wanting to build groups right now, because it's easier to take costs out of those groups as you start adding multiple locations and centralized administrative services. So do I think the traditional solo practice is going to go the way of the dodo bird in the next uh, five years? Absolutely not. We are below 50%. The ADA did a lot of Work on that, and and had a a webinar of that effect where I think like maybe forty six percent or something are traditional solo practice, single owner solo practice, but that's not going to five percent in five years. You know, I think reasonably you're probably going to end up somewhere around twenty percent, one out of five, but it's going to take a lot longer to get there. Um, How much of the market
1: is DSOs now?
2: this is one of the challenges because all because these are like whisper numbers, right? There's no MLS service like when you buy and sell a house to know how much of what is owned by whom. So uh, the assessments that I've heard from a lot of industry colleagues that are um, following this segment of the market is probably between high 20s to about a third of the market. So maybe 25 to 35% is a range. You've got another probably 20% that is uh, doctor founded in debt funded groups, meaning entrepreneurs using bank funds to grow, which is our target a- audience. And then the other 45% is your traditional solo. Those are really rough numbers, though.
1: What percentage of offices are fee for service?
2: I don't know that I know that number or I've ever seen that number, but I would tell you that it's in decline. Um, Is that not
1: the most profitable way? Because insurance is the, it's uh, someone told me in the healthcare, one physician told me once years ago that being a physician is the career of diminishing income because as Medicare reduces reimbursements, so do all the insurance companies. And I know insurance companies typically, even dental insurance companies, reduce reimbursements, or they don't have an inflation COLA factor on. So it's always costing more for the uh, patient or whatever. And some of the most successful financially dentists I've seen are fee-for-service dentists. Is, could I not argue that's
2: the most lucrative uh, way to run a business? You could, but it depends on how you look at it. So if we're talking about traditional solo practice, a fee-for-service practice requires fewer people to to operate it because you're not chasing insurance billing and, you know, pre-offs and all that kind of stuff. So you, you have fewer headcount. take some of the cost structure out. There is very little AR. Most of it's collected at point of service. So there's, there's fewer people in the, the billing and collections department, if any, typically fee for ser- people who are fee for service patients don't uh, fail to show up for appointments they value the relationship with the provider. They're not going to leave them because their insurance changes or something like that. So those businesses uh, are, are traditionally stickier from a patient retention standpoint. They're easier to operate due to compl- less complexity. And yeah, they're, they're more probably, they're probably more, much more profitable on a case by case basis from a and L standpoint. That being said, It's incredibly difficult to scale or multiply a business such as that because it's so provider dependent. So if you're going to build a group, you're arguably not going to take Attack of trying to build a strictly fee for service group because that adds uh, uh, an element of complexity at a provider level and a marketing level that's really difficult to solve. A lot of those are legacy practices that have been built a long time ago and are, are still reaping the benefits of that uh, fee for service payment structure that they have. Um, but it's, it's arguably not the way, I, I think it would be very challenging to launch a fee-for-service practice in today's world unless you had just an incredibly unique value proposition or were in a a unique market. But it's not as prevalent as it was 20, 30 years ago, for sure. That's
1: interesting. So so you help practices grow uh, and potentially exit, uh, either grow their existing group practice or grow to become a group practice. What are the biggest challenges that you see that prevents someone from growing?
2: It's a good question, right? I mean, because a successful dentist in a solo location probably got to be successful because he or she has great patient rapport, right? Their case acceptance numbers are through the roof. They probably do really good clinical dentistry. They have great culture, and and the staff doesn't turn over consistently, and they may be fee-for-service, like we mentioned before. And None of what I just said is really going to guarantee success in a group practice context. The challenges in in building a group are really that it's a skill set, one that's outside of a, a traditional dentist um, skill set. Well, that
1: All skill sets to be successful in dentistry outside of the clinical aspect, you're never taught. You have to go e- learn.
2: Exactly.
1: Hard knocks or hire somebody who knows how to do it.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's been that way in dental school. The business course is like a semester long, right? I mean, go figure. But so I, I think there are a couple of challenges, though, to answer your question in building a group and in no particular order of importance. The first one is, how does that founder start to replace themselves in a clinical capacity. Because you start adding locations two, three, four, at some level, you're building a business now. Somebody's got to lead that business. Somebody's going to have to be the CEO, the visionary. And you can't do that while you're cutting crown preps. So if you're going to start giving up days per week of clinical care, you got to replace yourself with an associate probably. And you got to pay that associate to do that work that you're no longer doing. So we call this the, the um, you know, scaling yourself out of the clinician role. And what typically happens in that context is that the founder who's replacing himself or herself in a clinical role starts to take a personal income hit because now they got to pay the associate to do the work that they no longer want to do. And when that happens, it can put pressure on them on on the home front because they probably have a standard of living that's geared toward the amount of income they derived as being the lead economic engine of the business. So how you replace yourself in a clinical capacity would be the first challenge. The second challenge is how you buy or build practices. Are you going to build them like de novo? Are you going to acquire them? And how do you think through acquisitions? Because You know, culture matters a lot, and and misalignment of culture will erode value quickly. Provider turnover will. If you overpay for a practice that's underperforming from a cash flow standpoint, and now you've got debt service on it, that can, you know, create a tremor. And then, If you're going to build a business to any level of size and scale, you're probably going to have to do it with um, associates that either earn into the equity structure of the business or buy in or maybe a combination of both. So how do you bring in minority partners to kind of, you know, help you man the ship and minimize associate turnover? So this would be a handful of things kind of off the cuff, I would tell you, that are challenges.
1: When people hire you, they're obviously coachable enough to pay you money. But are they coachable enough to realize they don't have the skill sets, and you can help them?
2: Are a hundred percent of them coachable? You know, probably not. I mean, we, uh, but I would say the vast majority that work with us are, and and the reason for that is, unfortunately, they've probably stepped on a landmine. One of the. Things that I just mentioned before, or, or a handful of others that would be kind of—I I would call it—making a fundamental mistake. And they realize that when they make a fundamental mistake, that they probably need to find some educational path to becoming a better business owner. And you know, there, there are very few people. There are very few companies that do what we do in terms of strategic consulting. So, you know, hopefully they find us if they've stepped on a landmine, hopefully it's not catastrophic and we can help them undo it and put them on the right path to success. And then the other thing I would say is that we do a lot of speaking from the stage at trade shows and conferences. We have our own podcast that we drop episodes on a weekly basis called Group Practice Accelerator. And um, we teach a lot of the fundamental concepts through webinars and you know white papers. So there's, there's a lot of content resources on our website that people can go and, and get educated on a lot of the things that we advocate and a lot of the direction we provide. And at that point, maybe the bell goes off in their mind. It says, okay, I don't know what I don't know. And I need to start somewhere. And, and these guys might be the right solution to at least get me on the right path. And if they come to us before they step on a landmine, we're probably starting off on a little bit better footing.
1: So what are some basic growth strategies, kind of a low-hanging fruit that you recommend for groups?
2: So the low-hanging fruit is really, we ask a fundamental question of every prospective client and every client we work with. And that is, what are you trying to build and why are you trying to build it? And that may sound fundamental, and and it is, but it is alarming how many people haven't given enough thought to that. And when I say, what are you trying to build, what I mean specifically are, are things like, how many locations is it? Or how much in revenue is it? Are you going to have uh, minority partners or equal partners in it? How fast do you uh, want to build it until you get to whatever success is for you? And then why are you trying to build it? Is it cash flow? Is it a build for exit? Like, what's your driver behind doing this? And we find that the the answers to that fundamental question are typically in one of two camps the answer is either really clearly defined in their mind and altogether unrealistic based on either outcome or time frame to get there or it's not defined at all and and they're just saying well i'm going to You know, my buddy from dental school bought a couple of practices, so I'm going to go out and buy one, too. I built a successful solo practice. How hard can it be? Right. So until you really sit down with somebody and press them on, what are you trying to build? Like, outline it for me. Give me details. What does it look and feel like? How fast? How many? You know, what's your role in it? But what are you going to do with the leftover cash? Are you going to reinvest it in the business? Are you going to take it out of the business? You know, and then why are you trying to build it? Well, is a group practice more defensible than a solo practice in terms of viability going forward? Yeah, it could be. I mean, do you want to build it for a, a massive windfall upon exit or is it a cash flow need? And if so, what, what is the quantifiable outcome you're trying to create? So we're very analytically driven in a lot of the, the you know, esoteric questions we ask.
1: Yeah, well, you need to be analytical in many respects. Sometimes the entrepreneur is not analytical, but they need somebody analytical on their team to really kind of look at things because they, just, they might just like, Hey, I'm going to go start, or start or a biopractice, right out of dental school. And all will make thing Maybe they had some level of success. Maybe they're just average. Maybe they're, maybe they're just a superstar because they have a unique skill set and then they don't realize it. But and next thing you know, they wake up like, well, I'm going to make this amount of money, in this amount of years. And it's like, okay, well, let's reverse engineer that. How are you going to do that? Well, I don't know.
2: You're exactly right. You use the, the word we are, the phrase we use all the time, and that's reverse engineer. So if you, you know, if Dr. Ross tells me that he wants to build a business and exit the business in five years and he wants to put $20 million in his bank account after taxes and after paying off debt, and he's got one location right now, I can do the math that yields a $20 million net walkaway number. I can reverse engineer all that. And if I say, Dr. Ross, you can achieve that outcome. All you got to do is buy four or five practices every year for the next five years to get there. How does that sound? And all of a sudden, you kind of look at me a little overwhelming. Yeah, yeah, right. So so at that point, you know, you sit there and say, "Okay, look, is it the 20 million dollar number that means the most to you or is it the five year time frame that means means the most to you? Because this is not realistic and I don't think you can do it. So is it a 10 year, 20 million dollar walkaway number or is it, hey, Perrin, I got to be out in five. Maybe 20 million isn't a number, but could you get me to eight? Well, let's see what that means. And so, if it's buying one to two a year, then maybe that's more realistic.
1: So let's talk about this. So you help Dennis exit their business. And there's a lot of people who are
2: brokers to BSOs. Okay. Yeah.
1: And by the way, real quick sidebar, do you guys actually broker deals with DSOs?
2: Yeah. So we, we don't broker doctor to doctor transactions we are a sell-side representative for groups selling to either private equity or to an enterprise level. And that's, just,
1: that's just one piece of a half a dozen things you guys do. Yeah. Because some guys, they're just brokers. You're, you're actually helping your consultants and other stuff. But yeah, so, right. All right. So we talked about this a little off air before we hit the record button. Obviously, a lot of people are selling to DSOs. Now, if you're 65 and you're selling to a DSO, I understand. But I've seen a lot of people in their mid-40s sell to a DSO. Admittedly, I'm not a dentist, so I don't understand the stress of being a dentist like they do. But it's my argument that if you sell to a DSO, you're, you're selling the golden goose. You're basically taking one year's income and just... Getting a front end load of it of typically seven or seven or eight x seven or eight times, and then you have you go from being a business owner to being a W two, which means you got to show up at eight thirty and or seven thirty or whatever time and leave at five Monday through whatever, and you you can't go when you want, you can't cut early, you can't do all that stuff, and so you're now an employee for three to five years, and now you're kind of done. It you know. 50 or early fifties. And, and, and most people as, as a guy who's a financial advisor, most people have never done the math. If you're 50 years old and you're a dentist and you're making half a million dollars a year, $10 million is not enough money because you're likely going to live another 50 years. So you got to have a second, a second act. That's why I feel like a lot of these people selling are short-sighted when they sell, but am I wrong?
2: I can answer every question with it depends. So let me, that's let me, fair. Well, so first and foremost, these are the questions that we strive to answer for our sell side clients. Maybe not to the degree that you do as a uh, financial analyst, but we have to, um, to give uh, the client the right guidance on whether or not to take an offer that's on the table. All right. So there, and there's a lot to this. So, First and foremost, I think the underlying assumption from a lot of financial analysts is that, uh, or financial advisors, excuse me, is that the continuity of cash flows out of the current practice will continue indefinitely. And I think depending on what the horizon is, that is a, a dangerous assumption to make based around competitive pressures in the marketplace, as well as the commoditization of services. We talked about declining insurance reimbursement rates and the difficulty in scaling a fee-for-service practice and all that other kind of stuff, right? So we know that dental practices are profitable endeavors and we know that a lot of solo dentists make a pretty healthy income. But to say that for somebody who's, I don't know, 45 or whatever mid-career is, you know, to say that the business they've built will continue indefinitely in perpetuity is is a dangerous generalization. All right? Dangerous assumption. Yeah. I mean, I don't think you can reasonably make that assessment, I guess is my point. And I think that's where you know we we get into a little bit of trouble. What we find is that for somebody, in, in our case again, these are group practices, the transaction structure for someone or a group of people selling their group practice is at some level in cash and some level in an equity role into the parent company. So the cash component, which is usually 60 to 80% of the transaction value, is this this is a broad generalization, is about four to five years worth of their annual earnings. Not always, but that's usually a safe general rule of thumb. So when you start seeing where the graphs cross, right, it's about four to five years on the cash component. So the equity component is a little bit of the jump ball here. And the jump ball becomes who the buyer is. It also becomes who the seller is from an investor horizon. So let's go back to your 60 year old dentist or, you know, late stage career. All right. So they're going to sell their group practice. They're going to get some amount in cash up front. They're going to have some amount in an equity role, and there's going to be some level and a uh, some amount of time in a work back commitment. Usually, two to three years is the right number to plan on from an obligation standpoint. If you want to stay longer, I'm sure the group is going to want you to stay around longer. But an obligation is usually two to three years. So you have some level of clinical compensation in those two to three years, based on the number of days you worked clinically. An average of the last three years. Now, if you know, Ross, that you worked four days a week and, you know, busted butt to do it. And these next couple of years, you'd like to go from four days a week to three days a week. That's all fine. But that's going to be impacted in the EBITDA calcs of the business and the way the business is valued. All right. So you can scale down or start to phase out, but it's going to be negotiated ahead of time, probably for that. Um, short of like a, a healthcare scare or something like that. But the real, he said, I think the crux of the matter comes down into the equity component that a seller would roll into a parent company. So who is the parent company? How long have they been in business? What have been, been their historical rates of return for investors? And pro- we'd like to say private equity groups don't own businesses, they rent businesses. So they're gonna- That's actually a, tip- a
1: really good point right there.
2: Yeah. So almost all of these enterprise level DSOs are private equity backed. So where are they in the the life cycle of maturity and for the private equity um, owners in the business, what's their hold? Is it newly uh, recapped for a, a new private equity group or is this in sta- is this at like age four or five years, meaning it's imminent to recap coming up? And for our listeners who don't know, when you say recap, what do you mean? It basically means one private equity group buying out the position of another a private when equity you group. Say
1: equity roll-up for our listeners, if they don't know.
2: So what that means is, let's just say that you own a business and, and the value of it's a million dollars, just to use a round number here. And let's say the transaction is valued at eighty percent in cash, eight hundred thousand dollars in cash, and twenty percent in equity, two hundred thousand dollars in equity into the buying company, the parent company. And the
1: roll-up so, is when the private equity group either get, sells to somebody else,
2: basically. Sells to another private equity group. Right. You know, so not all private equity groups are, are, are the same. They have different benches, different talent. They have different expertise. They, they, their target business to own has different characteristics. So some are really good at early stage businesses, growth and development. Others are very good at, you know, mid stage businesses for scale. And others are more almost annuity based, you know. Um, So, which works really well in dentistry due to the the cash flows of these businesses. So when you roll equity into a DSO, the opportunity, much like buying stock in Apple or or something, you know, or today when we're recording this, uh, Porsche went public in Germany as an IPO. If you bought a share of Porsche the day it went public, you may have some, you know, fandom for the the car company itself, the brand, but you probably also bought it as an investor thinking that it's going to be worth a lot more a year down the road or or something like that. Same thing with an equity position in a DSO. You would roll $200,000, to use the last example that I was on, into the DSO because your advisor, i.e. us, ran the projections and said, based on where they are in the life cycle, based on their track record of experience, based on what we know, the likelihood is that it might return as much as two and a quarter or three and a half or something like that. It's a way to to double your money. It's kind of like insider trading that's still legal. So a lot of these companies, especially those that are earlier stage where the equity isn't valued as highly because it's a newer company, a lot of them have a lot of trajectory um, for the coming years. And it can be an unbelievably lucrative uh, recap or internal rate of return based on when the equity releases from those companies. So it's important to understand how you get your money out, where they are in their life cycle. Do they have a track record of experience and success? Uh, what are your objectives uh, as an investor? you know, and, and what would we reasonably project to be an outcome for you in some period of time with it?
1: So who is your ideal client? Who who are the people you can help the most?
2: Yeah. So like I I said before, we don't work with private equity-backed groups unless they're a buyer for somebody we represent. And we don't really work with what I would call traditional solo practices. We only work with what we call doctor-founded and debt-funded groups. And those are dentists who are uh, entrepreneurs at heart that want to build multi-location groups, and they're going to use bank funds to grow. Could be a, a solo owner. It could be multiple owners in a group. Um, they could be at, you know, one to two locations. They could be at five to 10, and they want to get to 20 locations. But all of the the work we do, uh, whether it's on the... Um, you know, the growth and scale side of the business or the the exit side of the business. All we do is work with group practices, and we only work in dentistry right now.
1: So if people want to get in touch with you and talk to you, how would they do that?
2: Well, I mean, I would first point them to our website, which is www.dentistry.com polarishealthcarepartners.com we look for the world's longest unclaimed url and i think we found it but i can give you that if you want to link to it in the show notes but com is our website you can read a lot about us you can download a lot of information our podcast is there a bunch of videos and you can What's also the name book of your
1: podcast
2: group practice accelerator group so you can accelerator. find that on itunes then right iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, all of those, all of those outlets. And you can also link to it off of our website. So um, there's a lot of information on our website that uh, your audience can consume. You can also book a call with me directly off that website or my partner, uh, DeWalker Sinha. And I'll leave you my uh, uh, contact information, email address. It's Perrin, P-E-R-R-I-N, at PolarisHealthcarePartners.com. Um, you can see us, uh, there's a calendar of events where we're speaking, any upcoming webinars, things like that. So there's a lot of different ways to, to access our content, become a follower, or if you've got, you know, questions about any of the stuff we shared today, I, I take probably between five and 10, uh, prospective client calls a week. So I'm very, very willing to hop on a call with somebody.
1: What is one last tidbit that you can share?
2: I think the most important thing is if you're going to build a group, it's not for the faint of heart and you shouldn't do it because everybody else is seemingly doing it. If you're going to build a group, you owe it to yourself to learn what you don't know, to be intentional about it and to have realistic expectations. And if you can work with an advisor in a limited capacity or an extended capacity that helps you clarify that, you increase your probability for success, but success isn't guaranteed.
1: Well, this has been a really insightful conversation, Perrin. and I really appreciate your time on the, to, on the show today.
2: My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Good to see you again, and uh, I hope to have you on our show sometime, Ross. Well, that would
1: be great. You've yeah. been listening to the Financial
2: Flossing Podcast with Ross
0: Brannan. This has been another episode of Financial Flossing with Ross Brannan, guiding dental professionals to a brighter future. If you liked what you heard, consider subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. For more on Ross Brannan, visit rossbrannan.com. Ross Brannan is a registered representative of Coastal Equities, Inc. and Investment Advisory Representative of Coastal Investment Advisors, Inc. Investment Advisory Services are offered through Coastal Investment Advisors, Inc. and Securities are offered through Coastal Equities, Inc. Member FINRA, SIPC, 1201 North Orange Street, Suite 729, Wilmington, Delaware, 19801.